Welcome back to Word for Wordcast. Short stories performed with great theatricality. Word for Word has been sharing theatrical works of literature on stage for over 25 years. Now we bring you dramatic readings of some of our favorite short stories as a podcast. For our third offering, you'll hear Greg Saris's short story, Citizen. Greg Saris is not only known for his writing, he is also an activist and the chairman of his tribe, the Federated Indians of Great Rancheria, the Coast Miwok and Southern Pomo peoples of what we now know as Marin and Sonoma counties. Saris's fiction focuses on the often marginalized people of Northern California, indigenous Californian immigrant and BIPOC residents of the North Bay. Our story today centers on Salvador, born in the U.S., raised in Mexico, son of an American Indian mother and a Mexican father, he has returned to California to find his mother, or rather, her grave. And now please enjoy part one of Greg Saris's Citizen. On Wednesday morning, around nine, Salvador, the only U.S. citizen in the line of day laborers still outside the Fulton Grocery on River Road, remembered Catarina. A thousand miles south. No doubt in the shadows of a guamuchil tree. She would be waiting for a passerby to stop and give her a ride from Comala to Via de Alvarez. As she had for 99 and a half years. Many people passing the Guamachil tree on the two-lane highway claim Catarina was an evil spirit. Though none of those unwitting drivers who stopped for her reported suffering physical harm or bad luck. She was, Salvador's townsfolk said, forever going to visit a lover who had jilted her. Or who had died. The reason for her endless journey depended on whoever was telling the story. So, accordingly, La vieja de la calle, as she was sometimes called, was either vengeful or sorrowful. One reason Salvador had traveled to the U.S., to Santa Rosa, California in particular, was to find his mother, or rather her grave. But neither the long journey nor the fact that he was standing on a busy two-lane road waiting for a ride were what made him think of Catarina. She was able to see the driver who would stop for her long before any car came into view. And Salvador, too, could see who would stop for him, what car would pull into the grocery parking lot, and honk. Under the bright sky, the road was a diminishing gray line. Approaching cars reflected the sun in flashes of radiant gold. It was spring. The vineyards were awash with mustard flowers. The manicured grapevines, barely sprouting, twisted along horizontal wires like serpents suspended above the yellow blooms. Purple lupin and poppies filled the ditches. On this glorious morning, it was hard for Salvador to imagine how his mother had left this place for a poor mountain village in Mexico. Suchitlan, land of flowers. Salvador could hear his father say to his mother, The Indian girl with auburn hair. She didn't look like an Indian girl. 
Not like an Indian girl in Mexico, anyway. Not like his father's mother in Suchitlan, hardly five feet tall, with skin the color of black coffee. Salvador's mother, whose name was Lily, herself a flower, must have pictured a place like Santa Rosa on a day like this. Lil just wanted to get the hell out of Santa Rosa. Eldine, Lily's sister, told Salvador. Eldine, friends and family called her El, wrote to Salvador and his older brother Ernesto in Mexico. After Lily, who had already been back in Santa Rosa for many years by then, suffered her first stroke. A week later, a second stroke killed her. El was busy with funeral arrangements. Her family pitched in to buy Lily a coffin and a grave so that they wouldn't have to go the cheaper route and cremate her. El put in $500 herself, all the savings she had, and she hadn't found time to write. She wrote a month later with the bad news. Describing Lily's final days in the hospital, she she knew knew nobody nobody and nothing. So it was a blessing. And then the funeral, in particular the coffin, which was soft and pretty white on the inside. And on the outside, green, shiny as a new car that could take her to the Lord himself. She hoped Salvador and Ernesto would come and see the grave. She wanted something for them to remember their mother by. Salvador was a month old in his mother's arms when the family left Santa Rosa and boarded a plane to Mexico. Salvador was two and Ernesto was five when their mother left Suchitlan. She abandoned her laundry basket on the roadside one morning and... Hitched a ride on a bakery truck to Colima to buy a bus ticket to the border with the peso she'd been swirling away for a year. Two duck eggs. That was what you were worth to her, Salvador's father squalled, lifting two fingers in the air to emphasize his complaint. Two duck eggs. Which was what his mother paid a maiden neighbor to watch the boys while she supposedly would be at the river washing clothes. Salvador's father complained. It seemed to instill guilt in his sons. For having to raise him alone. For the short time that he did, and in turn... To obliterate any thoughts or curiosity they might have about their mother. Cursed. He would say... Both of Santa Rosa and Lily, wanting Salvador and Ernesto to consider Suchitlan their home and his new wife. The former babysitter who was paid the two duck eggs. They never heard from Lily. Ernesto would have been old enough to remember her, if only vaguely. But he never mentioned her. Perhaps he blamed her too? Forsook her in turn. After all... What did she leave him and Salvador but their father's wrath? Which indentured them to labor alongside him. To support the new wife and one right after the other. Four new sisters. Mm-hmm. There was the mistress to support too. <laughs> A woman in Comala and her two sons. Salvador and Ernesto had never seen her or their two half-brothers. One of whom was named... Salvador. (laughs) She liked the name. Their father told them with a laugh. They cut flowers in the hills. And sold them on street corners in Colima. Nopales. Herbs. Agave rounds. Whatever they could find, they sold. There was seasonal work in the crops. 
Sugar King near Suchitlan. And farther away outside Colima. And west and south of Michoacan. Bananas, papayas, limes, mangoes, melons. Their father talked about his conquests. In particular, about the Comala woman whom he called Pollita or Little Chicken. Whacking cane with machetes. Or piling melons onto a flatbed truck. They listened as he worked five feet away. Boasting as if to friends in a bar. Boys, Pollita, she has the softest wings and the warmest giblets. Of course, at home. In front of their stepmother. They knew to say nothing. When they were alone in the shed behind the house where they slept, they didn't talk about it either. Ernesto was three days shy of 18 when he followed a girl behind a truck loaded with cantaloupes. He's a man now, their father said to Salvador. The girl, all of 14, was short and fat with long, shiny black hair. That was in Michoacan. They never saw Ernesto again. Only the girl's father, who was short and fat too and had a pistol in his hand. Your son must marry my daughter, the man said, staring Ernesto and Salvador's father in the face. He's a man now and therefore must act like a man. On the way back to Suchitlan, clinging to the side rails of an empty flatbed truck, Salvador wondered if Ernesto had planned his escape, if he'd been dreaming of ways to leave their father in Suchitlan, and had found his opportunity with a fat girl's wink and her father's watchful eye in a cantaloupe patch. When Salvador left Suchitlan after receiving the letter about his mother's death, he followed El's address to an apartment building the color of an orange cream popsicle. Small children darted from open doors, crossing the empty walkways between apartments, screeching and whooping, <laughs> and then disappearing inside the doors again. But one child of indeterminate sex with a mop of sticky hair avoiding another child with an outstretched hand bumped into Salvador's leg, distracting him, so that at first he neither saw the door of 30B open nor saw the woman who opened it. Salvador was startled. Had he knocked on the door? It seemed he blinked and she appeared like a ghost. And his first impression of her, what he thought seeing her tight mouth and defiant jaw, was that she looked like an old and bitter man. Dialdin? He said, Senora Duke? She asked him in. Her Spanish was choppy, accented. And he thought of her letters and the numerous grammatical mishaps that even his sixth grade education allowed him to spot. The room was dark, all the blinds closed. She hadn't turned on a single light. The air was dry, yet Salvador detected a strange odor, the faint scent of garbage or moldy bread. Take a shower, she said, leading him to the bathroom. She then pointed to a door. When you're done, use the bedroom. I'll put fresh clothes for you on the bed. In the dark, he could make out the outline of her shoulders and her face. She was holding her nose. Go on back to bed, she said. And only when he was naked, his clothes in a ball at his feet, 
did he realize he hadn't bathed for the four days it took to leave Suchitlan, cross the border, and get here? In the bedroom, he found the clothes. The boxer shorts were silk. He ran his hands over them in the dark, then put them on, making sure front was front and back was back. He put on the rest of the clothes, a pair of Levi's, a t-shirt with a collar, and buttons at the neck. And then because the room was dark and because the door was closed, and she said she was going back to bed, he lay down and waited for her to wake. She will find me clean and in new clothes, he was thinking. When soft pillow under his head, he fell immediately to sleep. Disoriented in the dark, he bolted upright. He heard feet above him people in the upstairs apartment and what sounded like a woman calling her children to dinner voices came from the other room his aunt was talking to someone light seeped from the bottom of the door and along the sides he knew where he was but felt somehow he had missed something as if by sleeping and he had been tricked and something important had passed by him and gotten away had Dia Lin opened the door and found him sleeping? That she found the clothes on the bathroom floor and thought him disrespectful and a slob? Worse, had she found the clothes and thrown them out? He jumped up, then stopped fast. His feet felt ungainly in the tennis shoes. He curled his toes as if to remind them too of the new shoes. Then he went into the bathroom and, feeling his way in the dark, took up his shirt, underwear, socks, even his boots and stuffed them into the seat of his dirty trousers, which he carried back to the bedroom and laid on the floor. When his aunt opened the door and flicked on the light, the dirty trousers were there, lumpy seat and crotch, flat legs splayed across the carpet, like shriveled remains of some animal, and he stood in front of them, facing his aunt. Come on, lazy bones, she said. And he followed her into the other room. The room was neat and sticky bright. There wasn't much furniture, a coffee table and forest green felt sofa. In the adjoining kitchenette, there was a table and three chairs. If Salvador knew as much, he would have thought of a shabby motel room. The kitchenette's linoleum floor was clean, but scuffed. The carpet was threadbare where it met the linoleum and just below the door to the bedroom. A young man Salvador's age sat at the kitchen table. His hands were folded. He was looking at Salvador with wide, round eyes. As if asking a question. Salvador thought he expected him to sit down, so he went and sat. And his aunt looked pleased and sat down too. This is Marco, she said with her accented Spanish. He is my friend. She had a photo album in her arms and set it on the table. She was talkative, excited. As if now, with the lights on, she wasn't merely awake, but transformed. She rocked in her seat. Opening and closing fat little fingers. And every few seconds, she stopped rocking and leaned forward and tapped her polished pink nails on the green tabletop. As if communicating in code and waiting for a response. Her face was lit up, her black eyes shone. Salvador, now seeing her in the light, was surprised by her light skin. She did not look like an Indian from Suchitlan, more like the squat Mexican woman you could see on a street corner in Colima. 
calling to passerbys unashamed, uncaring of a missing front tooth as she beckoned them to see the nopales, sugarcane, and beaded trinkets displayed on a blanket at her feet. She was talkative and friendly. Yet Salvador felt uneasy, confused by how comfortable she was with him, as if it had been years and not minutes that he had been sitting at her table. Look, she said. She opened the album seemingly at random. And pointed to a photo of a broad-faced woman with big hair. Your grandmother, she said. Tia, he said. That's my grandmother? Call me El, she said and patted his wrist. Marco, who hadn't yet said a word, nodded. Then, before she could answer Salvador's question, and before he could look again at the picture, she had turned the page. Your mother, she said. Her index finger was on a Polaroid of an American girl his age. She had auburn hair and fair skin. He couldn't think who she looked like if he recognized himself or his brother in the girl's face. Elle began turning pages and pointing to different photos. This one, she kept saying. Oh, and this one, until she landed. On the Polaroid of the girl standing with her husband and young son, with a bundled infant in her arms. That's you, on the way to Mexico, she said. Marco was leaning over the table to get a good look at the picture. It was then that Salvador saw that Marco's t-shirt was identical to his own. A different color, but with the same collar and buttons at the neck, and realized he was wearing Marco's clothes. Do you want something to eat? El said. Salvador and Marco went to work in the morning. Salvador was groggy. He hadn't slept well. All night he was aware of the unfamiliar soft mattress and Marco's loud snoring. And he was excited. As he slipped in and out of shallow sleep, he saw himself before a square, pale green stucco building. It occurred to him he was in front of the hospital where he was born. He went in, pulling open a glass door. But then he woke with a start. He stared at the ceiling. He thought about what he would see come daylight. Marco had said something about work and the grapes. And he wondered about that. He would meet a lot of people, see different things. He was home, but he wished that Ernesto was with him. Sebastopol Road at six in the morning was empty. Only the taco truck on the corner was open. You need coffee, Marco told Salvador. While they were getting dressed, Marco told Salvador not to wear the silk boxers to work and then tossed him a pair of cotton jockey shorts. The silk is for sleeping. <laughs> and Saturday night, Marco instructed. Salvador still didn't have any specific impression of Marco, but he understood. It was Marco who would show him the ropes. El was up, but glued to a portable TV as they left the apartment. Marco bought their coffee at the taco truck. Salvador held the hot styrofoam cup street-armed as he followed Marco up the street. He didn't want to spill on himself. Work clothes or not, nothing was his but his boots. They turned up Dutton Avenue and went north for about two miles, then cut west to Fulton Road and went north again and three miles to River Road, Fulton Grocery. A green-colored building, square and windowless, was on the corner. In front of the store and along its side, men lined the road. At least 200 men altogether, 
each line a quarter mile long. They were of all ages. Most wore boots and jeans and t-shirts. It was a warm late autumn day. The long summer had turned their arms and faces black. Marco and Salvador found a place in line. Hey, don't worry, Marco said. A car will come that knows me. Salvador watched as cars pulled up and men rushed forward. He was awake now. Finally, a truck stopped. Marco yanked Salvador's arm and they climbed into the back. Braced against the truck's cabin, Salvador watched the countryside race by. Fall leaves, auburn and yellow, rows and rows of grapes, some of the vines already bare, twisting dark branches. There were small farms too, horses, sheep, and fat white-faced cattle, nothing like the coarse humpback Brahma cows that roamed the hills below Suchitlan. All the cars were big. The morning air felt cool on Salvador's face. There were five others on the truck, and he saw their hair blowing too. Marco leaned into him and said, You got a social security number. Then, before Salvador could answer, Marco handed him a card with a name and numbers on it. Give this to the man, and that's your name there too if he asks. Other men, boots, jeans, and t-shirts, were at the edge of the vineyard when they got off the truck. Young men who returned to Suchitlan after the harvest talked about working the grapes. Salvador had pictured lush vines full of hanging fruit. He was surprised by the endless rows of naked vines. And the work. Not cutting the grape clusters and piling them neatly into crates, but standing over the naked plants with a pair of pruning shears, cutting the branches back until all that was left was a stunted, frustrated-looking trunk. And he was surprised by... The skill and agility of the men. Amazed particularly... By their ability to maintain a fast pace. Long after he had grown tired. Many of the men were twice his age. His hands hurt. He understood the cramps and blistered skin were from gripping the pruning shears. Otherwise, he chalked up his tiredness to his journey and lack of sleep. This is crazy, Marco said on the way back to the Fulton Grocery. I wasn't thinking. El told me you are a U.S. citizen. We've got to get you a social security card. It makes all the difference in the world. day he didn't go to work. He went on a bus with El to the hospital where he was born. We should have done this first, El said as they went into the hospital building. Marco wasn't thinking. Salvador remembered that Marco had said the same thing, but his thoughts turned to his surroundings. The hospital was brown and tall with many windows and arches, nothing like Salvador's dream. He waited on a Nagahide sofa while El talked to someone behind a glass partition. The lobby was beige, recently painted. On the wall opposite him hung a colored print of the sky with a cloud like a feather. He wondered if his mother had seen the picture, perhaps... When she was in labor with him, sitting, waiting for the doctor. He looked to the corridor between the waiting area and the reception desk and saw, amid the passerby and the clacking of shoes on the tile floor, his family. Looking, Looking at him. His father. The auburn-haired girl. And Ernesto. They were in Sunday clothes, as if for a formal picture. 
Then El crossed the floor to him. Give me your Mexican ID, the Mexican driver license. With the license positioned between her fingers like a cigarette, El went back to the glass partition. The woman behind the glass peered timidly over her computer. El became excited. Pushing the driver's license in the air as if she were pounding a nail into a post with a hammer. Finally! She turned and motioned with her chin for Salvador to follow her. They took an elevator to the second floor and went into a smaller room. With the same excited gesture, pushing the driver license in the air, El talked to a man with a prominent nose, which seemed... On his expressionless face, his only measure of defense against her insistence. Then she stopped, dropped her hand as if the air had been let out of it, and she left the room. Waiting for the elevator, she said as much as to herself as to Salvador. Why didn't that idiot bitch downstairs tell me I had to go to the county recorder to get a copy of your birth certificate? Salvador, meanwhile, was glancing up and down the long hallway. He asked her if she knew what room he was born in. The maternity ward, she answered. At the county building, El got his birth certificate. At the social security office, two bus rides later, he had to sign something. But things went smoothly once again. It was as if Elle and each person she talked to now understood each other completely. Salvador didn't comprehend the reasons for this understanding any better than he had the reasons for the confusion earlier. On the way home, El dropped his Mexico driver license in his lap then handed him his temporary social security card and the copy of his birth certificate. He knew the social security card was what mattered, but he stared at the birth certificate. Black paper with white letters in English, Certificate of Live Birth. Oh, pinches cabrones, El complained, looking out the bus window. What it takes to get a fucking social security card. At the apartment, Elle explained to him... As she put it... La situation. She had to pay rent and utilities, and she would wash his clothes and cook for him, which cost money too. She said... Nothing in America was free. She had remembered from their conversation the first night that his brother was married and that his father had a new wife and children, and she told him he didn't need to be sending money home. He could keep whatever he needed, of course, say for a new pair of boots or beer on Saturday night, but she knew what folks made working in the grapes and wherever else that amount would barely cover what he owed her. I want $600 a month, she said, and then stopped talking. She was in a bad mood, tired. Salvador felt that her gruffness was due to her exhaustion over the long day with him. He was learning a lot about her. She could be quiet, sleepy, like when we first arrived and in the mornings when she sat watching the portable TV on the kitchenette table. Her face would be as blank as a cabbage. Other times, she was a molten ball of fire hurling itself at people. Like at the hospital. Regarding her quick temper, she wasn't much different from his father. He didn't argue with or question her. He told himself he would meet her terms. When she said she wanted to sleep a while before dinner, before Marco came home, he prided himself on having anticipated as much. 
Two hours later, when he came out of the bedroom in fresh clothes, his brown trousers, his gingham-checked, long-sleeved shirt with snap buttons that he wore from Mexico. Elle was excited. The way she had been after her nap the first night and the night before. Her brow was raised, her black eyes were shining. He handed her his dirty clothes. She tossed them into a basket under the sink and sat down again. Marco was at the table. The photo album was open there, too. Sit down, El said. And Salvador sat. She tapped with her polished nail a photo of his mother in her coffin. Oh, sweetheart, look. Look how beautiful, look how peaceful she is. She deserved that. Oh, she suffered so. I know. I took care of her. She started tapping with two fingers, both her index and middle fingers. Look. Look at that coffin, soft and pretty white on the inside, and outside green, shiny as a new car that could take her to the Lord himself. If her proclivity for sudden anger reminded him of his father, her talkative, finger-tapping kindness was altogether unfamiliar, and it continued to make him feel uneasy. He recalled what Elle had written in her letter about his mother's coffin, the same words she had just used. And he remembered sitting on his cot in the shed behind his father's house with the letters in his hand imagining his life in the U.S. He took a breath, focused. Marco was looking at photos too, nodding in agreement with El. He could see Marco clearly now. He had tight, curly hair. He was close to Salvador's age, and he was an American. His Spanish was native. Yet there was something similar about El and Marco. And Salvador thought he saw what it was now. They both had the same color skin. Light skin with an almost porcelain sheen, but upon close inspection, marred by tiny bumps, a colorless rash. Hey, my friend, Marco said. What you need to do is get a California driver license. It makes all the difference in the world. Freedom, my friend. Finally, they went to the taco truck. A pretty girl with a black eye took their order. Salvador ordered two beef tacos. El and Marco decided they weren't hungry. The tacos were $2 each. And Salvador was embarrassed when El paid for them. Still, the girl smiled at him. If only for a second. A man who sat in a chair next to the truck window watched her. He was fat and wore a pressed white shirt. She touched his shoulder each time she went to the window to place an order or pick up food. Salvador thought of how backward, how mojado he must look in his Mexican clothes. The night had grown colder. He was wearing his cotton undershorts from Mexico. But he imagined himself in the silk boxers. And the girl touching them with her fingers. The next morning, before getting into line with the others waiting for work, Marco and Salvador went into the Fulton grocery. You need caffeine, Marco said, pushing open the glass door, bearing a cardboard sign listing the price of cigarettes. Salvador thought Marco had said coffee because they hadn't stopped first at the taco truck for coffee. And he understood otherwise only after he found himself in front of a half a dozen coolers filled with canned drinks. Red Bull, Redline, Monster, Rockstar, 
speed stack? Milk and orange juice were in the last cooler, below the beer. What do you like? Marco asked. Salvador had seen young folks in Colima use these drinks, and a few of the workers on the papaya and agave plantations in Michoacán. Poison! His father had said. That stuff will make you go crazy. Anything, Salvador answered, shrugging his shoulders. The same truck picked them up. Salvador sipped his drink. He discovered a little went a long way and he decided, still in the early hours of the morning, to monitor how much he drank. He understood now why Marco and the others gulped the full can and why they had outpaced him his first day. Maintaining a fast pace meant more money. No different from Mexico where workers were also paid by the unit. Boxes of mangoes filled, acres of agave cut and harvested. But here, there were three or four times the money and sometimes just as many more men competing for the work. Still, he told himself he wouldn't need but a sip now and then throughout the day. He felt excited already. His mind raced. He thought of Marco. Marco was like the others. Full of plans. He talked about buying a house, buying a car, where to meet the most beautiful girls. Eh? He was savvy. He was from a good-sized town in Jalisco, just west of Guadalajara, and city boys considered themselves smarter than the rancheros. Salvador knew to watch himself, keep his distance. He dumped part of his Red Bull without Marco seeing and felt as if he won a hand of cards. He thought of the girl with the black eye too. Then while he was eating a cold burrito off a food truck, he thought of Ernesto. He wondered if Ernesto hadn't so much married the girl in Michoacan to get away from their father, but because he was lonely. He worked every day except Sunday. Nobody works Sunday, unless you could pick up gardening jobs. Weed whacking, tree trimming, brick and stone masonry, installing sprinkler systems. And you needed connections for those jobs. Friends who knew rich people. Salvador pruned grapes and then apple and pear trees. He cleared brush-filled pastures and apple orchards to plant grapes. It seemed most of the work was about grapes, caring for the vines or making room for more vines. The day the work ran out, the middle of December, when no one stopped to offer a job. Salvador's California driver license arrived. Elle had taken him a month before to the Department of Motor Vehicles. She said getting the license would be worth missing another day's work. Though Salvador hardly understood how, since neither he nor Marco had, had a car. But when she handed him the laminated card with his color picture, he understood what she meant. Good news, Marco said. You can drive, and if the cops stop the car, they won't hassle us the same way. You can get more work, any job. And if a snake bites you in the field... You can go to a doctor without wondering if he's going to turn you into La Migra. <laughs> Jesus Christ, you're a citizen. If Marco wanted a driver who was legal... El simply wanted a driver. For whatever reason, El didn't drive. Salvador had been in Santa Rosa two months by then. Winter had set in short days, cold nights. The last red gold leaves shriveled on the grapevines and fell away. The orchards were bare. On Sundays, he got up early and, leaving Marco asleep, and Elle, watching her TV, rode the bus. He wandered through the two malls, the coffee houses, old courthouse square, 
He took note of the change of season. The naked sycamore on a street corner and barren rose vines twining a picket fence and the still color of the sky. And eventually, he began to feel a full memory of the town was at last returning to him. El had taken him to his mother's grave. Whereupon he felt empty, even frightened, seeing the last name Duke, and not his own, on the plaque. Duke, a name he associated only with El. While he sometimes got off the bus to take in the hospital where he was born, the park where he sat on a bench after he first arrived, even the social security office in the Department of Motor Vehicles, he never returned to the cemetery. And it began to bother him in the evenings. When El brought up his mother, this Lily Duke, he liked the young people in the malls, <laughs> the girls especially. He talked to one girl who told him her name was Elizabeth. By this time, the girl at the taco truck had told him her name too. Ophelia. He bought a new pair of boots, his own tennis shoes, underwear, three pairs of trousers, even a white long sleeve shirt. He knew where to get a cheap haircut. He didn't think he looked Mojavo any longer. One night, while he was brushing his teeth in a new pair of cotton briefs, he found Marco looking at him. Man, you're ripped, Marco said, noting how hard work had made Salvador's body lean and tight. Salvador felt there was something more behind Marco's casual compliment, and he wondered then if Marco wasn't secretly Joto. He would watch and see. He had learned the value of waiting, watching like a cat over a gopher's hole. This driving business with Elle, for example, he had suspected she didn't drive, and now he knew for certain. Now, at the end of each day, as she put a pot of beans on the table, Elle reminded Salvador that he would have to look harder for work. I know it's the dry season, she said, but you got a social security card and a California driver license. He had $522 hidden in a sock, almost enough for a woman's rent. But never mind, he told himself. He would find work. Some days at the food and grocery, nobody stopped. Salvador stood in the cold with his hands in his pockets. On those endless days, he talked with Marco about other jobs. Permanent work in restaurant kitchens or jack-in-the-box and McDonald's. Where he could walk in with his social security card and matching California driver license. And apply for work directly, without someone having to slide him past a discerning owner or manager. The problem was, he spoke no English, which put just about any permanent job but dishwashing out of reach. He needed to learn English. Elle said she would teach him. But he felt uncomfortable taking up her offer. There was the issue of her mood swings. She didn't seem consistently excited about anything except... His mother. Showing him pictures of her and... The coffin. There was also the issue of her crooked Spanish. Her English. No doubt. Was the same. And he didn't want to speak English the way she spoke Spanish. Come spring or summer when he found regular work and a set schedule, he would enroll in ESL classes at the community college. Some of the men he worked with, who weren't even citizens, were learning English in ESL classes. He talked with lots of the men, or rather he listened to what he could pick up from them, and then asked questions. 
Then he dreamed, cutting grapevines, clearing blackberry bramble, riding on the back of a pickup truck after work with a day's pay in his pocket. He stitched together pieces of his future, a good enough car, a house, and a girl in the house. The girl from the taco truck. Or maybe the one he met in the mall. A command of English. And Ernesto there. Yes. yes. Ernesto and his fat wife from Michoacan visiting, staying with him in his house until they, too, got settled in Santa Rosa. The jobs, when they came now, usually lasted a day, sometimes only half a day. One morning, a pot-bellied man with a lopsided handlebar mustache picked up Salvador and Marco and told them he had worked for them on a dairy. The man was Mexican and he was U.S. citizen. He stood against the barn wall watching. Salvador and Marco pitchfork dank's fermented straw from calf pens into wheelbarrows. Hold the while suggesting ways for them to get their papers. The quickest and surest way being to marry a citizen, even if she was a cousin or an Indian. He rested the pitchfork and, with his free hand, felt the square packet in his front pocket. His driver license, social security card, folded birth certificate, $50. Another morning, a man picked up Salvador and Marco for a job painting the insides of cabins on a dude ranch. Salvador and Marco had to clean the walls first. Taking down framed pictures of a ribbon-haired girl's astride horses, smiling at the camera, one hand grasping the reins and the other clutching the stout saddle horn. The man was elf-sized. He hopped from foot to foot in what looked like polished toy cowboy boots, pointing his instructions all the while saying, no English, no English. When Salvador was certain that what he wanted to say was, No Spanish, no Spanish. Then there was the lady who took them to clear poison oak now I'm dormant behind a house in Montecito Heights. They worked, worked on, on her hillside, hillside and could see through her floor to ceiling windows. She paraded naked so they could see her. Sometimes they pay good money for you to do them, Marco said. And hell, in time of war, a chicken will do. Salvador turned around, kept whacking at the poison oak. The day was cold and they were working in the shade. Salvador thought of Ophelia. How she would look without clothes. Some days, only one of them was picked for a job. Usually Salvador, who standing alongside Marco, looked stronger and taller. There was no mistaking which of the two was wanted. No confusion over finger aimed from a car window. If they approached a stopped car... And the driver only wanted one of them and hadn't indicated a preference. Salvador nudged Marco to go. Not because he thought Marco would do the same for him, but because he wanted to keep the peace. There was always the chance another car or truck would stop. And it was easier to dream without Marco standing alongside him. Easier to observe, too. He saw men use the stuff that made the day go by like nothing. Early in the morning, men huddled two or three at a time behind the grocery dumpsters. In the dry season, with less work, they seemed to need it more. Was a restless spirit more demanding than a tired body? 
the big-time narcos in their shiny new cars pulled up to the lines in broad daylight now. Salvador suspected Marco used the stuff, and L too. But he was surprised to find Marco... Hey, hey, selling it. He'd come back from a job early, midday, and gone to piss. Out of the corner of his eye, he caught the transaction. Next to the dumpsters, a bow-legged man had tipped into Marco's hand. And then the money Marco took with his other hand, all in a single effort. Marco never saw Salvador. That rashy skin Marco and El have. Salvador thought as he peed behind a tree. Marco gives El dope, and I give her rent. In time, I will see everything. It's hard to turn the eye away, give up and just die away. There's gotta be an easy way, I'm tired of the greasy way. Grimy actions, we sending kids to fill the graves of our money. We the slaves, we the so-called misbehave. I have a country on my back, a million voices. When I rap, we only have a handful of choices. And I could vouch for that, the fallacy. All of the time, oh, what a travesty. The brainwash makes us okay with the tragedy. The main laws be my vision and my sanity. A painful cross to bear, so don't get mad at me. And when I'm speaking from the heart, it's to bring us closer together. And not apart, now that's a start That's why they call it art To enlighten up the mind so that the voice be the spark Now we see it in the dark Burn your books, and no more teachers dirty looks Hey, I know it's scary, we a country full of crooks I don't exclude myself, I search for the wealth But on my own terms, I'm in two books like worms The system's got a disease and we be the main germs If you're tired of the cycle, show concern Que tristeza ve, que la miseria no ha parado de crecer La injusticia ha creado el monstruo con poder Poder interno que no se deja vencer Un pueblo unido que ha mostrado que ha reunido Fuerza masiva que ha explotado y el oído De todo el reino de un ejército que ha herido A sangre fría cientos de almas se han perdido Es una bomba de ilusiones destinada A todo el que ha dado y no ha dado la cara Es una bomba de expresiones, sueños y complicaciones Pueblo ya desesperado que han dejado sin opciones Dando inicio a una batalla que abrió paso a todo el que esperado Ansioso ya salir del precipicio Sí, buscando, 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 buscando Buscando paz y libertad Puños arriba sin parar Hasta no ver con claridad Y dar luz a la oscuridad
Thank you for joining us for part one of Greg Saris's story, Citizen. Next week, we'll hear the conclusion of the story and find out how Salvador faces the challenge of finding his place in the U.S. If you liked what you heard so far, please subscribe and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To learn more about the podcast, go to zspace.org pod. This podcast is free to you. To help us pay the many talented artists who created it, please consider a donation at zspace.org pod. That's Z-S-P-A-C-E dot org slash pod. Citizen was directed by Handel Hing Hernandez and features Eddie Flores as Salvador, Carolyn Dunn as Aldine, Carlos Aguirre as Marco, Rodrigo Garcia as Salvador's father and ensemble, Regina Morones as Catarina and ensemble, Mary Claire Erdinast as Candy and ensemble, and Ryan Tasker as Mike and ensemble. Sound design and original music is by David R. Molina, with additional original music by Ross Kadi. Our line producer is Imani Champion. Production assistant is Desiree Alcocer. Audio engineer, Joe Moore. Production manager, Colin McDally. And our director of marketing and distribution is Andrew Burmester. I'm your host, Joanne Winter. Join us next week for part two of Citizen, followed by a conversation with author Greg Saris and director Handel Hing Hernandez. And now, to play us out as a special treat, please enjoy music created by Carlos Aguirre, the actor portraying Marco in Citizen, also known as the inimitable beatboxer MC Infinite, along with his collaborators Nez Beat and Keith Pinto.
confidence in No need to promise, just to follow what the obvious is Low key is just the mask I display The act for this play, I would ask you to stay But I'm supported, just don't cast me away You got that rare true back in the bay It's all them tactics, got me acting this way Hey yo Yo, 